This podcast is brought to you by GuestLogix, the leading global provider of ancillary-focused merchandising, payment, and business intelligence technology to the airline industry. To learn how GuestLogix can elevate your ancillary revenue potential, visit www.guestlogix.com. Mexico has become an interesting arena for low-cost carriers. The country has three low-cost players, namely Volaris, Interjet, and Viva Aerobus, all serving a country of 125 million. They are similarly sized at 55 planes, 57 planes, and 33 planes. They all fly A320s. They all use a low-cost model, and they are all growing. And to add to the intrigue, some of these carriers come with an LCC pedigree. Viva is owned in part by the Ryan family. Yes, the same Ryan as in Ryanair, the most successful airline in the world by some measures. And Volaris is owned in part by Indigo Partners, the equity firm that also controls Wizz Air, Frontier, and once upon a time, Spirit Airlines. Indeed, these airlines are similar, but then why are their results so different? That's the question we're going to start today's show with. We're also going to talk about Virgin America, Qatar Airways, and we'll look back at 2015. We're going to Mexico to discuss low-cost carriers, but it won't cost you a thing in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Cottrell, and joining me is the effervescent Seth Kaplan, <laughs> managing partner at Airline Weekly. You, you know what I think when I hear that word? No. There was, uh, back in the mid-1990s, there was that British band Bush that came out with uh, that song, Everything Zen. Yes. And I remember you told me back then, you know, 1995 or whatever, um, that the first time you heard that song, you thought they were saying effervescent instead of everything effervescent effort yeah exactly and that's what i think of when i heard that word because i right. don't use that word all that often <laughs> i remember being com- confused about that <laughs> okay so as promised our first question uh why are these similarly shaped airlines getting different results we reported in last week's issue that interjet had an eight percent margin in the third quarter and that's very different than Volaris's 21% Q3 margin. Yeah, the answer is the same one why you know, Spirit Airlines does better than JetBlue. JetBlue, of course, improving, but uh, that, that's that's part of the story. Uh, you know, Basically, Interjet, of the three that you described in the intro, Interjet, Volaris, and, and Viva Airbus, is, is the one that is uh, the most upmarket of the carriers, the lowest density of the carriers. Uh, you know, chases corporate travel and all that. And, you know, all those things, of course, uh, can work wonders for certain kinds of airlines. But if you're going to do all of that, uh, you know, if you're going to give people lots of extra legroom, you need to figure out a way to get compensated for it. And, and uh, you know, when you look around the world, uh, you know, I mentioned the Spirit and JetBlue comparison. Uh, JetBlue, of course, now uh, unbundling their product more, charging for bags and Guess what? They're they're becoming more profitable. Uh, or, or gosh, you know, uh, maybe even a better comparison, especially because we're talking about developing world. Um, uh, you know, Wizz Air in Eastern Europe, which you mentioned, because uh, the, the 
their backers, Indigo Partners, uh, have also backed Volaris in, in Mexico. Well, you know, Wizz Air is one of the most profitable airlines in the world, uh, whereas Sky Europe, which used to be its competitor in Eastern Europe, uh, is no longer in business. And that was kind of the upmarket airline in a part of the world where, you know, where, where incomes aren't the highest and where, uh, you know, it was really all about price. Uh, so, yeah, back in Mexico, uh, just take seat density. Uh, Interjet has a very low-density product throughout the cabin. Uh, and, and the history of that is that when you just give everybody lots of extra legroom, uh, it, it's really hard to overcome that in terms of the yields you get from everybody. No question, uh, there are passengers who, who value legroom and are willing to pay for it, uh, but it's hard to fill an A320 with all of those kinds of passengers, uh, you know, particularly in a market like Mexico where uh, where people are price sensitive. So, uh, you know, if they were to densify their cabin somewhat and sell some extra legroom seats, for example, uh, you you know, that might work well for them. Uh, Volaris has gone very much the, the opposite direction. They are uh, basically at or near maximum density. Uh, you know, they charge extra for everything, all the kinds of things that generally help low-cost carriers around the world. Uh, and uh, they're doing very well with it. Viva Aerobus, uh, as you mentioned, owned by, by Irlandia Aviation, uh, partly uh, which is the Ryan family money. They, too, uh, by all appearances, doing rather well. Interjet, for now, is sticking with um, its model, but... Uh, has a lot to prove in terms of profitability. How much room do these carriers have to run before this becomes a, a crowded market? Well, it's becoming one, but uh, this is one where it sort of it all kind of depends on where you start history. Uh, look, this year compared to last year, it, it's it's certainly a lot more crowded. Uh, these airlines have undoubtedly grown beyond how fast Mexico's economy is growing, and really always and everywhere in the world when the airline industry in any market, grows more quickly in the economy, almost always yields come under pressures, airfares drop, uh, and that's what we've been seeing in Mexico. Uh, but, you know, if you take the the longer view, uh, it, look, uh, gosh, it's really just five years ago, uh, five years and a couple months, that um, Mexicana stopped flying for good. So uh, what you had there, uh, you know, if you compare now to, let's say, the summer of 2010, and suddenly this giant airline, by some measures, Mexico's largest airline of all, just went away, uh, there was a huge vacuum to, to, to fill. Uh, so Aeromexico filled part of it. And these three airlines, which all existed back then, uh, but were very small, uh, filled a lot of it. And, and they've all, you know, doubled or tripled in size since then. Uh, and, and you also had a lot of um, sort of first generation, uh, rougher around the edges, low cost carriers also uh, go away. Avolar, uh, uh, Aviaxa, and, and a whole bunch of others. So there was a vacuum to fill, but now they've filled it and, and, Maybe then some, considering that Mexico's economy just, just isn't growing all that rapidly. Will we learn anything from these three in Mexico that uh, we haven't learned in the U.S. or Europe? I don't think so. Uh, you know, it, it, again, it's 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 pretty simple when you're talking short haul, uh, you know, particularly in a market where people are really looking for value. Uh, yeah, the Interjet model, um, you know, they uh, they've stuck by it, you know, and, and uh, they've, they've talked for a long time about how they were going to get the necessary yield premiums for, for offering more. Uh, they were really the ones who had the burden of proof because that's not usually how it goes. Uh, again, you can, you can offer more, but uh, you really have to sort of unbundle and charge people for it. Uh, you know, really hard to, to across a whole aircraft cabin, get everybody pay enough to, to, to what they're providing. Uh, and that's been the history everywhere. And, uh, 
and, and it's certainly playing out that way in Mexico so far. So we'll see how long they stick with it, or if eventually they they go down a road. Like I said, some something like what JetBlue is doing, where uh, you know they they still. I mean, look, you know, even the worst seat on JetBlue is still very nice, uh, but they are going to be densifying their cabins. They are unbundling the product somewhat, and and at least um uh you know sort of doing a better job of capturing revenue for the desires that their passengers have, you know, rather than just sort of giving everything to everybody. And what are you expecting from them in 2016? Well, uh, you know, hard hard to be too optimistic uh, uh, about things getting a whole lot better because the industry there is still growing so rapidly. Now, w- one big change that they're making is that uh, they're they're going to be flying internationally a lot more. There are a lot of things that distinguish these airlines. That's one of them. Uh, you know, Volaris has been flying, been doing a lot more transborder flying at a time when the U.S. economy, of course, has been doing rather well. So, you know, that too uh, is, is an important distinction. Uh, another, by the way, uh, sort of going back to the JetBlue analogy, is that Interjet uh, has, has a second entirely separate fleet type, in their case, Russian uh, Sukhoi Superjets, uh, you know, rare among uh, sort of Western airlines in, in ordering those. Uh, JetBlue, of course, years back, began incorporating Embraer E-190s into its fleet. And, and you know, uh, that was a decision that, you know, although those are very good aircraft for certain kinds of airlines, uh, you know, legacy airlines that need a smaller gauge, uh, pretty hard to say that that has worked out well for JetBlue. And, and in that Regard to Interjet is, you know, going down a sort of an unproven path. Uh, so, so you know, uh, it, it's it's hard to envision them outperforming their peers uh, without something about their their model changing because uh, in Volaris and and uh, Viva Airbus look a lot like the low cost carriers around the world that do very well, and, and Interjet eh, looks more like those that tend to lag. Okay, moving on to a small story that gave me some questions. Uh, Qatar Airways will no longer be the launch customer for the A320neo. Instead, it will be Lufthansa because Qatar had some concerns about the engines. My question, does it really matter? Does Lufthansa really want to be the launch customer? And is Qatar regretting they won't be the launch customer? Oh, I guess all things being equal, sure. You know, wouldn't you want to be the launch customer? I mean, heck, you know, we still mentioned, you know, Pan Am was the launch customer for uh, the 747. That was, what, 45 years ago. But 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 then again, uh, that doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot for Pan Am nowadays, does it? So, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's um, for, for for especially for an airline like Qatar that that um, that, you know, that that likes to uh, to to brag when it can, uh, perhaps more even than some airlines about being the first or the best. Uh, for certain kinds of things, I'm sure it would have liked to have been the launch customer, uh, but but obviously it decided that uh, that its other issues uh, mattered more. And by the way, uh, when I say all things be equal, I'm talking too about you know assuming that technically everything is fine with aircraft. Um, if you think about the the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, for example, the first several of those off the line uh, or just just didn't perform as well, you know, in terms of their, their efficiency and so forth as, as all the others that have come off. So, you know, so certainly if, if, you know, if you're stuck with an aircraft that turns out to be inferior, that that's a whole different story, but I'm just talking in terms of assuming that they all, uh, you know, one works as well as the other. Uh, sure. It, it makes, you know, perhaps some small marketing difference, but nothing, nothing that matters in the long run. Qatar was, of course, the A350 launch customer, but that launch party got delayed then, too, because of the changes that Qatar wanted Airbus to make. We wrote this week in Airline Weekly that Qatar is, quote, notoriously picky, unquote. Can you expand on that at all? Yeah, uh, well, you said it. I mean, they're they're doing this with with the uh, 320neo. They did that with the with the A350, uh, even with the the airport in in uh, in Doha. 
the rather new airport. It was well documented that um, that uh, Akbar Bakr, the CEO of Qatar, would walk around the airport and point out, uh, you know, small flaws, what are, I guess to him, not small, but, you know, things that to anybody else might might not look all that important. But, you know, he said, you got to fix this. Our customers uh, demand more. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in that case, a lot of it was was uh, was more aesthetic. Uh, elements, but you know, here we see that operationally too, they're holding uh, the feet of of Airbus, and in this case, also Pratt and Whitney, the engine maker, uh, uh, to to the uh, metaphorical fire. So this is uh, this is what they do, and uh, and again, interesting that in this case they were even willing to give up, uh, you know, being called the launch customer in exchange for getting what they wanted. Does it matter that it was the A three twenty Neo, which? While a tre tremendously important aircraft, won't change airline strategy as much as, say, the 787 or the A380. Oh, uh, I, I, I guess you mean is it is it less important for the for the 320 Neo, for example? I mean, being the A320 Neo, which it could be considered less sexy than the 787 or the A380, which were just different. You know, the A380 had two levels. Um, is it less prestigious, less dramatic? Did they care? And because of that, did they care? Did, could Qatar have cared less? Well, um, yeah, but on the other hand, you know, the impact could be um, as much or more only, only because, uh, well, what we're talking about here is, is that um, basically you, you would need to run the engine, uh, according to a report by, by Air Transport World, citing industry sources, uh, an extra three minutes at idle before you could push back from the gate. Uh, and you know, whatever you have to do with with each cycle of, of an aircraft uh, matters more with a short haul aircraft simply because it flies more cycles uh, during the day. So uh, so so with a wide body aircraft, uh, you know, it's maybe only on the ground twice a day. And so if something uh, costs you an extra three minutes of time of fuel, whatever it is, uh, it, it's it's less important in that regard than it is. Uh, for a narrow body aircraft, which is going to be up and down more. So, you know, in, in that regard, um, it, you could say that this was perhaps, uh, you know, although, uh, yes, absolutely. You're right. Less sexy. And, and that might've factored in, uh, to them saying, you know, we don't care if we're the launch customer of an aircraft that eh, a lot of customers might not even consider a new aircraft because, of course, A320s are flying today, just not Neos. Um, on the other hand, for operationally, uh, based on the issue as we ex uh, understand that they might have decided that you know what it's actually more important and and of course they're working on the issue and apparently uh you know the expectation is that that uh, the certification will come to where they don't have to run the ex engine those extra few minutes but uh in the meantime uh, Qatar was was uh, obviously wait willing to hold out for what it really wanted yeah, so it'd be interesting to see if this was replayed with the A350. Would they have would they have let it go so easily? Yeah, it's it's, it's a good question. And, and I mean these these engines uh, that we're talking about here, you know, it, it is an important to note. Uh, this is uh, a bigger departure from from other engine technology than than we've had in a long time. These are the new Pratt and Whitney uh, uh, gear turbofan with they're calling their, their pure power engines, uh, and you know they they've promised just. Uh, incredible uh, economic performance and, and operational performance for these engines. Uh, CFM, which is the the other company offering en engines for the A320neo, you know, they, they've sort of said all along, hey, our engines uh, can, can do about as well. And uh, precisely because it's not so different from the old technology, uh, you know, th there weren't as many questions about about how they would 
outperform. Pratt Whitney has, has said, look, these are going to perform uh, as well as anything, and, and, it's, and it's worth taking the, the sort of the bigger step change in, in technology. So in the long run, we'll see how it works out. But, um, but uh, you know, th- this, this is a big deal also because it's not just a new airframe uh, that's launching. But uh, and as I mentioned, in some ways, it's not as new as anything else because it's, you know, it, it's just a newly engineered. But in terms of the engines themselves and specifically these engines, these Pratt & Whitney engines, uh, it, it's actually quite revolutionary, even beyond some of the uh, uh, some of the other new aircraft that have launched. Okay, I'm going to start bouncing around a bit now. Uh, we had a nice write-up on Canada's Air Transat in this week's issue. Uh, we wrote that Transat is benefiting from a new strategy to gain domestic feed traffic for its long-haul flights from big cities like Toronto and Montreal. My question: What's the strategy? Well, you know exactly that. This is an airline that mostly ha- has sold point to point. You know, filling well wide bodies to Europe, and well, it used to be wide bodies down to the Caribbean too. Now, more often uh, narrow bodies, with people just all flying nonstop from from Montreal or, or Toronto and so forth. Um, and and now they've been running some short haul flights. Uh, generally, it'll be like you know once a day, uh, hooking up with the the long haul bank, like any hub just on a much smaller scale. And, uh, you know, they said that, that, uh, that it's, that it's working well. I, I mean, of course there have to be marketing challenges in terms of selling those short haul flights, uh, those, you know, once a day short haul flights up against Air Canada and WestJet, uh, who fly many times a day, uh, in, in these markets. But, uh, but, you know, apparently people are finding them be interesting to know, by the way, uh, you know, how many of just the local they're selling, uh, because they do sell them, you know, you could fly if you happen to want to fly at that time of day between Montreal and Toronto on, on Transat, you, you can buy just that ticket. Uh, but again, as, as you said, the point was to provide some feed for the long haul flights. And, uh, you know, by all appearances, they're, they're, uh, they're doing rather well. Uh, they, they also, um, done a good job in recent years of, of, uh, uh, sort of getting more precise with their network and, and finally having a fleet that they can optimize a little bit more than they could. They used to basically fly, uh, uh, you know, a three tens, uh, both to Europe and to the Caribbean. Uh, these are aircraft that aren't optimal for much, uh, you know, a little too small for Europe, a little too big for the Caribbean. Uh, and well, and just not all that efficient because it's, it's an old generation of, of aircraft technology. You know, now they have three thirties going to Europe. They have seven thirty seven dash eight hundreds going to the Caribbean. So that, you know, just more often they have the, the right aircraft going to the right places at the right time. Uh, and, and so, so that too has helped along by the way, Jason, with the fact that, uh, the Canadian loony, uh, although weak uh, by us dollar standards not all that weak compared to the euro and so they've uh you know they had a good good summer in terms of traffic between canada and europe canadian point of sale traffic uh going to europe to visit okay that brings us to the statistic of the week which in my opinion was that ryanair's passenger volumes have grown 21 percent year over year in november 21 percent is fast for an airline of this size as Mel Brooks might say, it's a ludicrous speed. <laughs> Did that 21% surprise you? Well, uh, well, it didn't shock me only because, uh, well, they grew their seat capacity by 15% year over year that, that, that according to some DOME data I just pulled up. So, uh, so you know, uh, so, so the bigger surprise would be had, had their traffic grown by less than 15%. Uh, but yeah, but it, the math there, uh, you know, obviously the planes were, were even considerably fuller relative to the capacity growth. Good news for them. Helped uh, 
uh, well, by, by their continuing, uh, well, sort of something I said about transit a minute ago, but Ryanair, you know, uh, continuing to really schedule precisely. Uh, they are not pulling down their winter schedule this year as much as they did in the past. That, that largely responds to cheaper fuel. Uh, you know, they, 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 we've talked about it in other episodes. You know, the, the marginal becomes viable when oil is at, is at the levels it is right now, and, and Ryanair is taking full advantage of that. Uh, it, it, look, you had the Lufthansa strikes where some of that traffic, traffic spilled onto competitors, including Ryanair. And so you add it all up, and, and uh, yeah, between just the— uh, the capacity growth alone, there's a lot more seats in the marketplace and the other forces, uh, not all that surprising, but still impressive uh, that they managed, as you said, for an airline where you're already growing from a rather big base to put 21% more people on the uh, on their planes this year in November than they did last year. Speaking of high growth rates, Virgin America appears to be returning to a high growth strategy. Virgin's growth in 2010 was 17%. In 2011, 29%, and 27% in 2012. But then things got weird. It shrunk 2% in 2013, and it's been essentially flat since then. But we reported last week that Virgin is returning to high growth mode. This sounds all very random. It does, doesn't it? Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's not in the sense that you know, they, they realized they were growing too quickly. And they deferred aircraft deliveries. Uh, you know, they, they worked with aircraft, Airbus, basically, who uh, to, to push those deliveries out. You know, Airbus had plenty of other customers who were willing to take planes sooner. Um, and basically, uh, the bill is now coming due. You know, now now uh, they they that's all run its course, and they have to take the aircraft that they've ordered. So over the past few years, um, you know, no surprise. Uh, basically, they they let their markets mature. Uh, you know, demand caught up with supply and they became a, a somewhat more profitable airline. I mean, they're still you know, toward the bottom of the U.S. industry, but you know, toward the bottom of the U.S. right now is, is, is not an awful place to be. And, and so, I mean, look, it, you know, this this happens anytime you stop growing so rapidly and you have a larger percent of your markets that are mature markets. Uh, the same, by the way, has happened for JetBlue and that, along with some of the other things I mentioned earlier, just, just the fact that they have more mature markets helps explain their margin expansion. Well, uh, so Virgin America hasn't had to sort of do some of that most marginal flying that that, uh, that they're often doing. Uh, and and sure enough, they've been more profitable. Well, again, those new aircraft are coming. Their capacity is going to start growing again. And we'll see how they manage. Uh, you know, they have the luxury, again, of just being in a, in a very healthy marketplace right now uh, where even sort of questionable things can 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 work reasonably well. Um, but this is an airline with, a, you know, without the lowest costs, uh, you know, they're not Spirit Allegiant Frontier in the U.S. or, you know, Ryanair was there, what have you, uh, elsewhere in the world. Uh, so they need to find the revenue um, to compensate for the cost of providing with what they do. And it, it, that's a hard thing to do when you don't really dominate any markets. Uh, you know, you move up the coast from San Francisco up to Seattle and you look at Alaska Airlines and you say, well, how do they do so well? And somebody else we've, we've mentioned a few times in the past, how do they do so well despite kind of that upmarket product for an airline that's, you know, not sort of your most comprehensive global airline and so forth. Well, uh, you know, they're the number one airline in Seattle and in Portland and, and, and many parts of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they command revenue premiums because of their network, and then they have a, a, a product that can take advantage of that. Uh, Virgin, you know, obviously has the product. People love it. 
uh, but they they don't have a network that gives anybody anything that any other airlines network doesn't uh, doesn't do. Uh, and so that without the lowest cost and now back in expansion mode, back pushing into uh, almost by definition, more difficult markets because, you know, whatever's new is probably the, the thing you didn't start sooner because you didn't think it was your very best idea. Um, it, 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 it's going to be tough. Uh, but but having said all that with uh, oil still hovering under uh, 40 bucks a barrel, you know, uh, uh, jet fuel prices in, in many parts of the U.S., down near $1.50 a gallon, uh, all kinds of things are possible. Now, this is our last episode of 2015, and we got to end the year with a lightning round. <laughs> so looking back at the year, I'm going to give you a category, and you give us either the airline or the story that best fits the category. In full disclosure, I gave these to Seth already because I wanted this to be as thoughtful as possible. You want you want me to be thoughtful? I, I, there's a first for everything, right? <laughs> Uh, okay. Category number one, biggest surprise. Well, I, I guess you got to say the, the, the continued collapse in oil prices, right? Uh, I, I actually took a peek back at the year in review issue from last year, the one that we published a year ago this week. And, and we used the word stunning to describe what at that time was a collapse in oil prices to $58 a barrel. And that issue was full of questions about, you know, can this continue? You know, hey, don't get too excited. Southwest just just that week had made the point. You know, we can't count on this necessarily continuing. Uh, you know, they, they were forecasting oil prices or jet fuel prices rather for this year uh, significantly above what they ended up paying. Uh, and of course, that all remains true that, hey, we never know what tomorrow brings. But at this point, we've had a, a rather sustained period of, of low oil prices dating back oh, 16 or 17 months at this point uh, of uh, trending downward. And at least at the moment, sitting here in the in the mid to high thirty dollar uh, per barrel range, uh, certainly no sign yet uh, of that changing. Biggest disappointment. Gosh, I, I think you'd have to say Copa. Uh, you know, this is an airline that for years has often been the most profitable airline in the world in terms of its operating margin. You know, that that is standardizing for for size of different airlines. Uh, and and right now it's it's middle of the pack. I mean, it's still putting up margins that you know plenty of other airlines around the world would be happy to have. Uh, but that's quite a fall for them. Uh, to be clear, much of this through no fault of their own. I mean, it's just the neighborhood where they're operating. Uh, they were very exposed to Venezuela and had trouble getting their currency out of there. You know, they have Brazil exposure and the rest of it. Uh, you know, it, it would just be impossible for them to continue putting up the numbers uh, that they had been. But uh, nonetheless, you, you would have to say uh, that's a disappointment, even if it is, on the other hand, an achievement to be doing it as well as they're still somehow doing. Worst timing. Yeah, I just mentioned that Brazil, right? I, I, you got to say Azul, low-cost long haul uh, to the U.S. I mean, this is something that would have been risky under any circumstances, not just because of all the difficulties that we've talked about uh, over the various episodes of, of the low-cost long haul model, but that market in particular, you know, it's one thing for Norwegian to, to do it from Europe to the U.S. where you can stimulate demand. You know, there's visa-free travel. Somebody can hop on a plane this weekend if the fare is right. Can't do that uh, for, let's say, Americans lure them aboard a plane down to Brazil this weekend because they can't go. They're not allowed to. They can't get the visa that quickly. Uh, and, and, and that's a big deal because right now, if anything, that would be the uh, the direction of travel that you would be expecting. Brazilians, uh, you know, with their far weaker currency, with their contracting economy, are not traveling abroad in the same numbers that they were before. And if they're going abroad at all, uh, you know, they're going to um, – 
to Argentina, uh, not to not to Orlando in South Florida, where Azul is flying. Uh, Jason, by the way, the, the runner up that I had uh, for, for bad timing, I was going to say SAS's Stavanger Houston route uh, with those uh, narrow body 737s. A very creative route. Uh, you know, it was going to be all business class. I mean, they launched it, uh, but just awful timing with that collapse in oil markets. That was uh, that was an oil flight. And uh, they have redeployed those aircraft elsewhere. Biggest head scratcher. Yeah, well, uh, you know, low cost long haul. I mentioned it. Um, you know, we, we talk about the challenges. And yet when you look at a few airlines that are doing rather well at the moment, uh, uh, one is Cebu Pacific, which has gone low cost long haul. And you know, we, we had, wrote a cover story not too many weeks back about how well they're doing. Um, to be clear, uh, you know, it, it, they're not doing well because of low-cost long haul. I mean, they're doing well despite it. Lots, lots of other things are going well there. But the point is that low-cost long haul isn't do isn't working badly enough to drag down the whole company. Uh, you could say the same thing about Norwegian, uh, you know, which is which is doing rather well. And where clearly, again, that low-cost long haul operation is 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 not the best thing about the company, um, but. It, it's it's certainly not the the financial disaster that it might have otherwise uh, turned out to be, and for all of that too, uh, you can thank cheap oil, which disproportionately, uh, for all kinds of, of reasons that we've that we've discussed at other moments, disproportionately uh, benefits long haul travel. Most amazing thing, Delta's operation. Uh, you know, uh, they um, and, and look, they're they're none too shy to talk about it. Uh, you know, they're, uh, but, uh, but Hey, they, they've, they've earned the right to, to, to brag. Haven't they, you know, they, they I mean, gosh, they've gone, uh, something like half the days of the year without canceling a single mainline flight, uh, anywhere in the world for mechanical reasons. Um, and well over a hundred days of the year without canceling a single mainline flight for any reason at all, you know, even for you know, weather and air traffic control and all the things that, you know, the airlines can't do much about. Uh, and, and, uh, I mean, that's just many times what, what most airlines of that size, uh, can, can experience. So it's, it's, uh, you know, they, they're obviously doing great things financially, but, uh, uh, operationally in particular, just, just, uh, really, really impressive. Biggest case of denial. Yeah, well, I guess I guess Delta would say this, um, and this I ask as a question. We we don't know the answer to here yet, but is it the Gulf carriers, you know, thinking that they're going to have productive uses for all the all the incoming aircraft? Um, you know, we'll see. But 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 obviously, you know, they're, they're under some some revenue pressure already, even with very large outstanding order books. Is it on the other hand, Chinese carriers, which even as China's economy uh, is slowing in terms of its growth, are just expanding abroad like mad. Now they're they're still doing rather well in terms of their profits, uh, but you know when you look at a, an economy whose growth is slowing and, and just just all of these, gosh, what seem like very marginal sort of uh, you know secondary uh, new nonstop markets, um, you know it, it's it's uh, it's hard to say. And some people, well, I guess Delta would say this too, would say. You know, the, the aircraft finance community, less towards anybody who thinks the aircraft values are going to stay up. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but, uh, you know, are we seeing the early signs of, of an aircraft bubble bursting or not? Um, we'll, we'll see uh, later on if, if uh, people hoping for continued high prices uh, have, have themselves been in denial. Biggest hardship. 
I guess you'd have to say Kenya Airways. Uh, yeah, you know, here's an airline that uh, is is uh, you know is is really a star in its part of the world. You know, a well managed airline that uh, uh, you know partly owned by KLM and and uh, you know, which which has helped a lot um, in, in terms of providing management expertise. Uh, but you know, and you had. Uh, you had terrorism. You have obviously the collapse of commodity prices hurting Africa. Um, you had uh, back in 2014 Ebola, which which uh, impacted travel demand to Africa for a very long time. I mean, never mind the fact that Nairobi is farther from uh, the the capitals of the Ebola affected countries than you know than. than Los Angeles is from New York, but the perception mattered. People canceled their trips to to Kenya and beyond. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, here they sit uh, really toward the bottom of the industry in terms of their margins um, because of all those hardships. Best survivor? I would say Aegean. I, I mean, it, you know, they, they've been doing this for years. You know, Gr- Greek has been, you know, in and out of, uh, of, uh, deep danger and when it's not in deep danger it's only in danger over the past uh uh you know at this point what uh six seven eight years um and uh aegean has 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 indeed survived um you know you had the, the threats of the grexit this year um and an airline still putting up uh, very nice margins uh, you know it's adapted uh it, it by the way has 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 been a little bit lucky actually benefiting from some of the issues in in north africa and so forth greece can actually be an alternative destination but nonetheless uh, you have to give them a lot of credit most <laughs> i can't get the word out most stubborn <laughs> uh yeah, I'm going to say Korean Air for, well, I've mentioned Delta a few times, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, by all appearances, uh, you know, Delta has has uh, really pursued vigorously a, a joint venture with Korean over the years. Uh, Korean has, and up until now anyway, uh, you know, said no. Uh, and, you know, now even under uh, sort of some pressure, you know, Korean's an airline that, um you know, with all the windfalls everybody's gotten from fuel, falling fuel prices, whose margins have expended less than than almost any other, uh, uh, you know, you would think they're in a situation where they wouldn't feel as emboldened to try to go it alone in terms of North America than they as they have in the past. Um, but here they are, uh, still still uh, still doing that. And that, by the way, going forward, will be interesting to watch. Uh, what happens with uh, you know, just with with Delta's whole Asia dilemma in general? We, you know, we know what's gone on between it and. And we know what's going on between it and Alaska uh, as it, Delta continues build, building up Seattle on its own. Uh, so we'll see what happens there and we'll see what happens with Korean if it indeed continues to go it alone or if it, uh, you know, expands, for example, its bilateral relationship with American uh, now that it has its its uh, its code on uh, uh, its code share on flights to, uh, to to Dallas Fort Worth. Luckiest airline. Got to say, Aeroflot, and and uh, that might sound strange, uh, you know, for an airline that is operating in what should be such a tough environment, uh, you know, with the with the collapsing commodity prices and uh, and sanctions against Russia and the rest of it, uh, you know, all kinds of demand issues in terms of international travel. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, foreign airlines have gone fleeing from Russia, so they've 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 left more of the international market. Uh, to Aeroflot. Um, you had a large domestic competitor uh, collapse, uh, large, I should say, domestic and inter- large local competitor, flying both domestic and internationally, Transaero, uh, other airlines that are really on the ropes. 
And, uh, you know, and Russians are still traveling. They're just traveling domestically. And, and there, too, Aeroflot is able to take a lot of that market for itself. Uh, you know, it, of course, doesn't compete against foreign carriers for domestic travel. Uh, you know, it's also done some smart things. It's trying to expand its sixth freedom travel, you know, just, just people connecting through Moscow between other points. Uh, you know, and that's not luck. That That's that's smart. But uh, but yeah, it, it, it's been rather lucky and rather surprisingly lucky. OK, last category. Longest lightning round ever. <laughs> yeah. I, yes. I think, it, I think we. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It happened right here on this show right now. Sorry. <laughs> we might rename it for 2016. <laughs> Seth, thanks for wrapping up a great year. You make the show go, my friend. We'll be back on January 6th with another episode. Until then, happy holidays and thanks for listening to the Airline Weekly Lounge.